Sisters, sisters, there were never such devoted sisters. Never had to have a chaperone, no sir. I'm here to keep my eye on her. Hello, my loves. Welcome to another episode of Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. We are in the thick of Sister Month, and as you probably noticed, we have a brand new theme song just for this month. Um, Oh, how I wish I had had the foresight to get it for the past two episodes, but here we are. Sister Month theme song recommended by an amazing listener who I'll thank in just a sec, sung by... Fittingly, my own sister, Anna Telfer. So I hope you like it and you'll hear it next week too. Okay, guys, um, you might remember I was away, like I was traveling for the past two episodes, so they weren't recorded in real time. We're back in real time and I have so much to tell you that I'm literally going to give you a table of contents right now because I have things to tell you in the intro. I need to tell you what we're talking about today. And then I have things to tell you in the outro and it's just going to be crazy. So here's the table of contents. I'm going to tell you the table of contents. I'm going to thank the listener who recommended last week's episode because she sent me an amazing anecdote. Then I'm going to read you two sister anecdotes from listeners. Remember, I asked you to send me your sister anecdotes? Well, I got two amazing ones. Then I'm going to tell you about this episode and who you're going to hear from. Then we're going to get into the story. But then please stick around for the conclusion because not only am I going to thank my new patrons and tell you about a change.org petition, but I have an update on Lloyd Dean. Remember Lloyd Dean, Marie Dean Arrington's son? We've been raising money for him. Oh my gosh, I have an update. Everything's okay. Everything's fine, I think, but I'm sort of embarrassed because the narrative is different than what I thought it was. Okay, so bear with me, my loves. We'll get there. Okay, I'm opening up our table of contents. Oh, I have a listener to thank. So last week, we learned the amazing story of the incredible Mirabelle sisters. And I said that someone had recommended it to me, but I couldn't remember who it was. Well, it was Carla. My dear Carla, she recommended it, and she also told me something incredible. So Carla's family is Dominican, and she said that there's a story in her family that her grandma was married to her grandpa real fast to keep her out of Trujillo's clutches. Can you believe it? And she says that it's a rumor her grandmother doesn't squelch. Isn't that fascinating? So, Carla, thank you for recommending last week's episode, which I know a lot of you really liked. And your grandma's awesome. We love her. Glad she's safe, too. Okay, so now I have two really cool sister anecdotes for you. I put out a call. I wanted to hear if you and your sister have any know cool things you'd like to share with the rest of my listeners. And here are two I got. So this first one is from Carrie. She says, here is a story from me and my identical twin sister. We often find the questions like, can you feel what your sister is feeling? And do you know what she is thinking about? Funny. But there have been times when you just know. I was kind of the wild one of the two of us as teens. My sister was always concerned about me. One night, when I was out late and she knew I was with some people I shouldn't be with, she couldn't go to sleep. She tried and tried, but just laid there awake until 2 a.m. 
The next morning, she asked me what time I had come home. I told her, two. Okay, and this anecdote is from Emma. She says, My sister is my stepsister. She and I never lived together. Our parents got together when we were both in our mid-twenties. We grew up on the same small island in Maine, though, and I had always looked up to her because she was beautiful, artistic, and queer, something I didn't dare come close to admitting about myself back then. I don't know that we ever spoke before our parents fell in love. We finally bonded for real while caring for my stepdad through the end of his life. We were both with him when he died. He was a complicated and very beautiful man, and I know that I got to experience the best of him in his final years when he was sober and gleefully in love with my mom. This January, my sister was pregnant with her and her wife's second child. It was the pandemic, and I wanted so badly to be with her, rub her feet, and make her tea and fresh bread. I couldn't, of course. Instead, I woke up from a dream one morning and immediately texted her, I had a dream that you were going into labor and your feet were cold and your lips were chapped, and so I was running around trying to find you socks and chapstick. I love you. In response, I got, You are amazing because I did go into labor at 1 a.m. this morning. My feet are very cold on the kitchen floor and my lips are chapped, pacing the house. As someone who has worked so diligently to build my chosen family of queers, this connection without a shared drop of blood felt like such a gift, like recognition that all the ways I believe family to be huge and shifting and absolutely magical is as real as anything else. Ultimately, like a final little spark that my stepdad left behind for us to revel in the glow of years after he was gone. I just love that anecdote. Both of them are so, so beautiful, and I love that one is a pair of identical twin sisters and one is a pair of stepsisters who aren't related at all but still have a magical connection. If anyone else has a sister anecdote, maybe a creepy one or a beautiful one, send them to criminalbroads at gmail.com. All right, so let's move on to today's set of sisters. Last week, I told you this episode was going to involve chopped up body parts. <sighs> let's see. I have a confession to make. I was going to do the case of the Scissor Sisters. They are, this is a very gruesome Irish case, and it was a listener request. And I started researching it, and guys, I just couldn't. I just couldn't do it. You, I mean, I know, it's a true crime podcast. Like, you, would, you wouldn't think I would be so squeamish. But you may notice I, I rarely do super, super gory cases here. I just hate them. I, it's just too much for me. I don't want to, like, put it in your ears either, necessarily. There are plenty of amazing podcasts that do those. So... I was researching it, and oh, it, it's just so graphic. And I was reading this book that had like a blow-by-blow explanation of what happened. And basically, the story is two down-and-out sisters did a lot of drugs, killed a very abusive man, and hacked up his body parts. There's not like a redeeming element. It's just really sad. So anyway... I pivoted. I couldn't do it. I'm sorry. And so I was looking for other sister cases because I had been planning on that one. And I'm actually really glad I pivoted because I found this case. I had never heard of this case. It's very recent. It had never crossed my path. I bet it'll be new for a lot of you. Um, and it's very of the moment, especially in Russia, where it takes place. So we're going to talk about the three Khachaturian sisters. This is a case that happened in Moscow just a couple of years ago and is still very much ongoing. 
You're also going to hear a couple times from the journalist Matthew Luxmore, who is the Moscow correspondent for Radio Free Europe. His Guardian article about the sisters, which I will link to in the show notes, was one of my main sources for this article, so I had to bring him on. As always, all of my sources are linked in the show notes. You know that, right? Hope you know that. And last but not least, um, this episode deserves a trigger warning for abuse, sexual abuse. Yeah. Nothing fun to say there. Just trigger warning. Okay. You ready to get into the story? Let's travel to Moscow, where the bulk of the action happens in the year 2018. A man named Mikhail Khachaturian had three daughters, all in a row. He hadn't wanted girls, and now here they were, three of them. There was Christina, age 19, Angelina, who was 18, and Maria, 17. In some ways, they were typical teenage girls. They knew how to take a good modern selfie, not the old-school MySpace kind where you hold your phone above your head, but the Kylie Jenner kind where you hold the phone a little bit below you and you purse your lips sexily. They liked to go shopping and go to the movies and invite their friends over for parties. Christina, the eldest, was incredibly friendly. Her best friend Victoria remembers that when they met, Christina's first words to her were, How are you? Let's get acquainted. We need to take a selfie. Even though her two sisters were only slightly younger than she was, Christina referred to them as the little ones in her WhatsApp messages. The little ones, as in, quote, The little ones begin to sob and resuscitate me. It was fucking crazy. Behind the selfies and the occasional trip to the movies, the sisters had a secret life. A terrible life. They lived on a tight budget and were responsible for buying groceries and paying the household bills. They weren't allowed to spend more than their father gave them. They cooked and cleaned and ironed his shirts. They weren't allowed to date. Like, they really weren't allowed to date. From the outside, people could sense that their father was behind all this. Angelina went to the movies with a boy once, but her father called halfway through and she raced home. Best friend Victoria remembers going over to the sister's house for the first time and noticing that there was an entire wall covered in religious icons at the entrance, a whole wall of angels. Victoria tried to touch one of them, and all the sisters panicked at once. Don't touch, don't touch, they said. Our father will notice and freak out. If Victoria had looked up when she entered the apartment, she would have seen a camera there watching her. Their father had installed it. He wanted to know when his daughters were coming and when they were going. Christina loved math, and she wanted to study it further at a place called the All-Russia State Tax Academy. But she couldn't continue her education because she was missing too many school days. Sometimes her father wouldn't let her go to school. Other times she was just too exhausted to show up. Once, her father made her stay up all night, ironing 50 of his shirts— Another time, when Christina missed an important lesson, her teacher asked her what had happened, and Christina responded, I cooked for my dad. 
This became a joke in the classroom. Ha <laughs> ha, she missed school because she cooked for her dad. But anecdotes like these were just the tip of the iceberg that was the Hachaturian household. Let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsor, HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Listeners, my dear listeners, I must say, these days, in these busy days, I can't not make it to the grocery store anymore. I just can't. Like, there's a lot on my list, and one of the things that just seems impossible is grocery store trip and lugging my groceries back. That's why I'm feeling HelloFresh these days. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And also, real listeners will remember, they have an incredible recipe for a zucchini ricotta penne lasagna thing. I forget the official name, but it is life-changing, and I'm still thinking about it, even though I made it, like, two months ago. HelloFresh's ingredients are sourced directly from growers and delivered from the farm to your door in under a week. It offers the flexibility you need to easily customize your order on the app within minutes, and you don't have to go to the grocery store for any of it. If you need a lemon, they'll have a lemon in the box. If you need some feta cheese, trust me, guys, the feta cheese will, in, will be in the box, Okay. So go to HelloFresh.com slash CriminalBroads12 and use code CriminalBroads12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash CriminalBroads12. That's the number 12, one, two. And use code CriminalBroads12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. Mikhail was a cruel, strange, corrupt father. He was extremely superstitious, and so his daughters weren't allowed to say certain words because he thought they were bad luck. They couldn't say salt, well, the Russian word for salt. They couldn't say words that sounded like salt. They couldn't say pain or words that sounded like pain. Mikhail hated the numbers six and eight, but he loved three and seven— if you wanted to get into his apartment, you had to dial 777 on the intercom. He also had three sevens on his license plate. He disliked barcodes. He wouldn't get in a taxi if it was a Hyundai Solaris. If a random guy on the street crossed his path, Mikhail would race to catch up with him and get ahead of him so that his path was no longer crossed. His work history was mysterious and suspicious. He had spent some time in the army, where he was seriously wounded, and because of that, he took tranquilizers and had frequent doctor's visits. Then he began to work amongst criminals as a fixer, a racketeer, basically a minor Tony Soprano figure, someone who would force local businesses to pay him money in order for him to protect them. So not only was he connected to the criminal underworld— 
But he also had friends in high places, like the police. He was very close with the police. He carried around fake business cards that said he was an employee of the Federal Security Service, Russia's major intelligence agency. And he owned a bizarre arsenal of weapons, not just guns and knives, but a crossbow and 16 spears. He used these weapons, too. Sometimes he'd fire off a gun inside his apartment. Once, he pulled out a pistol when a neighbor tried to mildly critique his parking. He pointed it at her head and told her never to tell him where to park again. There's one more important thing to know about this man. He was a very religious person. He was passionate about his Orthodox faith. He traveled regularly to Israel, where he visited holy sites. And at home, he prayed at a shrine and always took his daughters to church. They attended an Armenian church, as Mikhail was ethnically Armenian. According to his wife, Mikhail truly considered himself a religious, righteous man of God. He didn't see any inconsistency between what he did at church and what he did at home. For example, one day, he went to church with his daughters, and he brought along his dog, a Labrador. He locked the dog in the car during church, and when he came out, the dog was dead of heat. Mikhail went home, beat up his entire family, and bought a new dog. That was just the sort of church-going father he was. The girls had a mother, Aurelia. Aurelia knew better than anyone else how violent Mikhail could be, and yet he managed to keep his darkest secrets from her. The two of them met when she was 17 and he was 35. There was nothing romantic about it. She was waiting with her mom and aunt at a bus stop, and Mikhail drove up, had a hushed conversation with her mother, and then took Aurelia home with him. After that, he started helping out her mother's business. It was as though Aurelia had been sold to this strange man, Aurelia didn't want to date him, but what choice did she have? He made it very clear that she had none. At one point, she tried to leave, and he coerced her back and then eventually locked her inside his apartment. Before long, she was pregnant. As her stomach grew, she felt the walls closing in on her. I had nowhere to go, she told the Russian newspaper Novia Gazeta. I could not resist. I did not dare to run away. I was afraid of shame. If you live with a man, you cannot just leave. So the two got married. We got married with tears in our eyes, she told Novaya Gazeta. He beat me up, and we went to get married. And it didn't stop for 20 years. In front of his relatives, in front of strangers, he could scream obscenities, beat me bloody, and then say, as if nothing had happened, Arika, make me some tea. Aurelia and Mikhail had four kids together, a son, Sergei, and then the three girls, all in a row. Mikhail beat his son regularly, trying to make him more tough and manly. Instead, Sergei grew more and more withdrawn and suspicious, until he was 16, when his father chased him out of the house for good. 
As far as the girls went, well, Mikhail didn't want daughters, and Aurelia knew that. Every time she gave birth to yet another girl, she worried that her husband would kick her out. He didn't kick her out, not yet, but the abuse grew and grew. She had no idea what would set him off next. One minute you're talking to him normally, she told journalist Matthew Luxmore for The Guardian, and then suddenly he might begin shouting and cursing. He would beat her for paying attention to the children and not enough to him, for not giving him the five-star service he felt he deserved. He treated her like a maid, and he would even ring a bell when he wanted something from her. No one in the family was allowed to sleep or eat without getting permission from him first. One terrible day, he threw his wife out of a moving car. She ended up in the hospital, but he only let her stay there one night before yanking her out again. The family lived in a two-room apartment. All six of them slept in one room, and guess who lived in the other room? Mikhail's mother, sister, and nephew. All three of these relatives would have witnessed or overheard this abuse, but none of them thought Mikhail's behavior was troubling. Enduring is a woman's duty, they told Aurelia. They said that since Mikhail supported her financially, she had to put up with his violence. If he hits you, they said, it's your own fault. And they weren't the only ones in Russia who felt this way. No one would come right out and say that domestic violence was a great thing, but there was a whole movement in Russia, backed by the conservatives and by Mikhail's own beloved Orthodox Church, that wanted domestic violence to stay behind closed doors with no interference from the law or from politics. Here's Matthew Luxmore. This is kind of where they tap into the whole broader state narrative about preserving what Russia calls and what Putin calls traditional values against this perceived Western campaign to dilute uh, Russia's traditional values and impose its values on Russia. These activists, many of whom are tied to the Orthodox Church, including lawmakers, conservative lawmakers, they argue that a man, or rather, you know, we shouldn't interfere in people's families. Uh, families should be kept uh, apart from the state. But, but it's a very, it's kind of, I guess you could say, a very patriarchal view that uh, the man is the head of the family. He should not be questioned on how he governs uh, the affairs of his family, of his children. And there's a very widespread view among such people that if your woman is acting up, you need to put her in a place. If you viciously beat her, then you should be held accountable for that. But, you know, if you, if you slap her on the wrist or, I don't know, do something slightly worse than that, um, it's fine. We should all just get over it. We shouldn't be causing such a fuss over it. Um, you know, once a year is fine, which is currently what the Russian law permits. One light beating of your, of your wife a year is currently allowed uh, under a law uh, that was passed in 2017. In an atmosphere like this, victims of domestic violence could try calling the police, but it probably wouldn't work. As one officer told a woman when she called to say that her boyfriend was threatening to kill her, if he kills you, we'll come to examine the body. Don't worry. Forty minutes after the call, that woman was dead. Aurelia herself learned quickly that there was no point in asking the police for help. Not only did they not take domestic violence very seriously, but in her particular case, the police were friends with her husband. 
Once, when Aurelia's kids were still tiny, she fled from the apartment and begged the police for help. But Mikhail showed up right behind her. He was smiling. He pulled back his hand and hit her right in front of the police officers. Nobody did anything. And then one day, in 2015, Mikhail forced his wife to leave. It was a strange reversal of his behavior early on in their relationship, where he locked her inside his apartment. Now, he put a gun to Aurelia's head and hissed, I'm going to leave now, and if you're still here when I'm back, I'll kill you all. Aurelia fled, afraid that he'd murder her and her daughters. After that, she hardly saw her girls. Every now and then, they'd sneak a phone call. But that was about it. She knew that he was beating them, but she didn't know the rest of it. Mikhail had been sexually abusing his daughters long before he kicked their mother out of the house. But the girls kept it secret from their mom. They didn't want her to worry. And at first, Mikhail had managed things so that the girls kept it secret from each other, too. He had the ingenious craftiness of a hardened abuser. He began assaulting his two older daughters, Christina and Angelina, in secret, banking on the fact that they wouldn't confide in each other. And he avoided Maria, the youngest, because he thought she'd tell her mother. His divide-and-conquer approach worked for a while, but eventually the girls found out. He had been assaulting them since at least 2014, the year before he threw their mother out. It was that year that he took his middle daughter, Angelina, on a trip to Israel and assaulted her there. On another trip, two years later, he forced Christina into his hotel room. Afterwards, she raced out of the room and tried to kill herself by swallowing pills. He would claim that various sexual acts were good for him, good for his health, good for his prostate. He would ask for massages. When he wasn't with the girls, he was terrorizing them from afar. On one of his solo trips to Israel, he learned that Angelina wasn't at home. Furious, he sent her WhatsApp messages saying that he was going to rape her when he got back. He also sent his daughter's messages saying things like, quote, I'll beat you up for everything. I'll kill you. Leave, leave. Don't drive me to sin. Here's another one. You are prostitutes and you will die as prostitutes. The sick irony to all of this was that Mikhail was very preachy about sex before marriage. He always warned his daughters that it was a sin to have sex with someone you weren't married to. But then he'd say, as Angelina told police later, because we're his blood and his daughters, he can do with us as he wishes, and we should submit ourselves to it. It's not that nobody knew what was happening. There was plenty of evidence to be seen or heard if you paid attention. The Khachaturian neighbors were used to hearing screams coming from their apartment. People had seen Mikhail beat his daughters in public. And at least one of Christina's friends knew. 
Christina had described one assault to her friend over WhatsApp once, saying that this sort of thing happened almost every day. I lost consciousness during the night, she texted. He began to chase me out at one in the morning because he didn't like the fact that one of his shirts isn't ironed. I became anxious and started crying and then began suffocating and fell on the ground. The little ones began to sob and resuscitate me. It was fucking crazy. And to top it off, he whacked them over the head with his gun. The abuse went on and on. By January 2018, the girls had stopped attending school, and their father hardly let them leave the house. He gets worse every day, Christina texted her friend. But the sisters had no one to turn to. Their father was too well-connected, and they feared that if they told their relatives, no one would believe them. And so the abuse continued. Three girls and their father, alone in a house full of weapons. On the last day of Mikhail Khachaturian's life, he screamed at his daughters. It was July 27th, 2018. He was furious because the apartment was messy. According to one source, there were hairs on the floor of his apartment, and this was simply the last straw for this poor, beleaguered, church-going man. His daughters were going to have to pay. So one by one, He called them into his room. He was waiting there with an unusual weapon, pepper spray. He sprayed his daughters in the face, one at a time, three in a row. Then, with his work done, he plopped himself down in his rocking chair and took a nap. Christina had taken the most pepper spray in the face. She also had asthma, according to some reports, so she started choking. She groped her way back to her bed, and she fainted there. Her little sisters watched this happen. Now, it wasn't that they hadn't seen this sort of thing before, but today, they just couldn't take it anymore. Later, they'd refer to this moment as the final straw. Angelina was preparing food, she says, when she and Maria decided that it was time to kill the man who'd made their life such a nightmare. So they crept out of the apartment, and they went to their father's car. There, they found a hammer and a hunting knife. They snuck back in and moved towards their sleeping father. Maria had the knife, and Angelina had the hammer. Maria drew back, and began to stab her father as Angelina bludgeoned him over the head twice. He woke up, stood up, and pushed them away, confused and bloody, yelling that he needed to wash himself. By then, Christina was waking up. She heard screams coming from the living room, and she thought that her father was abusing her sisters again. So she ran into the chaos. There on the floor, she saw the bottle of pepper spray. So she grabbed it and sprayed her father in the face. Then, terrified, she sprinted out of the apartment. Her father lumbered after her. Angelina grabbed the hunting knife and ran after him. And on the landing, Angelina stabbed her father in the heart 
repeatedly. He fell. The sisters panicked. There's CCTV footage of one of them in the hallway just after the killing. She's pacing around in shock, wiping her nose and covering her mouth with her hands. The girls cut themselves with the knife a few times to make it look like their father had stabbed them, and then they called the police. They claimed self-defense, and they were arrested for murder. In December of 2019, five months later, investigators turned their findings into the prosecutor's office. They declared that the three sisters had killed their father in a premeditated manner, that they'd conspired together to kill him. The investigators said that because of the long-standing physical and sexual abuse the sisters had experienced, they hated their father, and so they basically created a murder plot. This narrative from the investigators admitted that the girls suffered from PTSD and something, quote, resembling battered child syndrome. But since it declared that they had premeditated the murder, the girls were now facing down decades in prison. But other people disagreed with this narrative of premeditation. In fact, a few weeks later, the deputy prosecutor general, a man named Victor Grin, asked investigators to change it. He thought the sister's crime should be classified as self-defense, which would mean that the girls would be set free. But then, in July of 2020, a year after the crime, Victor Grin reversed his stance. No one knows why, or if they do, they're not saying. The killing was classified not as self-defense, but as murder, which meant that the girls were going to have to stand trial. In the meantime, the sisters had become famous, or infamous, depending on your news source. Their story was splashed across every newspaper and talk show in the country. People began protesting the murder charges in the streets, holding concerts and plays to raise funds for their legal fees, and circulating a petition online to drop the charges against the sisters that now has over 400,000 signatures. Not only was it a shocking story, three daughters stabbed their father to death, but it hit a raw nerve in Russia. Because Russia had a terrible history when it came to prosecuting domestic violence, or rather, not prosecuting domestic violence whatsoever. And the Khachaturian girls' case was only the latest example of the country's refusal to admit that domestic violence was a problem. The fact that their mother couldn't go to the police, the fact that no one stepped in to help the sisters, this was all too normal for many, many Russian women. A 2012 survey by the Russian government found that one in five women had been assaulted by a partner. Despite shocking numbers like that, a law passed in 2017 decriminalized domestic violence, reducing it to a minor offense— this law declared basically that if you beat your wife, but you don't beat her hard enough to land her in the hospital, you get a small fine, about the same amount as a parking ticket. Or maybe you get 15 days in jail. If you do it again, you might get a slightly longer prison stint. But if it's been a year since the first beating, you'll just get another small fine. No big deal. 
Russia's conservative movement, which is in bed with the Orthodox Church that Mikhail Khachaturian was such a passionate part of, fueled fears that legislation against domestic violence was somehow anti-family. And Putin let this all happen since he needed the church's support. There's always been a kind of link between Putin's government and Putin personally and the church. He portrays himself as a very pious person and goes to church on Orthodox Easter and other major church holidays. But he he allied himself much more closely with the church, and the church became the main champion of this decriminalization law on the law to decriminalize a first-time battery. You know, this bearded men in all kinds of funny hats go to the Russian parliament and uh, make kind of fiery speeches about how we need to defend our families from Western interference and how, you know, the units of the CIA are trying to infiltrate our, our kids' minds and all these kinds of things. There's one guy I talked to who has nine kids, you know, which is something he's very proud of. And also uses as evidence of the fact that he's been able to build, you know, a great family in the traditional mold. He's one of the people who's been the public face of this project. And he's very closely allied with the Orthodox Church. So I think it's fair to say that the Orthodox Church is kind of a main official channel that's pushing this backlash, uh, or rather pushing this campaign against the initiatives, the legal initiatives that are pushed by Oksana Pushkin, this liberal lawmaker who's trying to pass Russia's first law on domestic violence. And because the Orthodox Church is closely allied with the state and in many ways backed by the state, people like Pushkin are are in a very tight spot because to push through a law on domestic violence in the current climate in Russia is pretty much an insurmountable task. Because the church is so against any legislation that cracks down on domestic violence, Mikhail himself would have been absorbing that message, consciously or unconsciously, Sunday after Sunday. And he wasn't the only one. It does seem ironic. There's someone who hovered a whole wall of his apartment in icons, Orthodox icons, at the same time was, from what we know, a pretty despicable character. I mean, someone who was involved in all kinds of criminal activity in the 90s, um, viciously beat his wife and did much worse to his daughters, was at the same time a, a religious man who, again, had icons in his apartment, took trips to Israel to go to the holy sites, You know, it's funny, actually, I was initially going to end my piece in another fresh example that a case that came out just as I was finishing the piece um, of a man who lived in Leningrad region, which is um, the region that St. Petersburg is the capital of, who had nine kids. Um, He kept them essentially, this is quite a grim story, as slaves in his home and uh, abused them quite seriously. His wife gave birth to all these kids inside the home and outside the building he erected this enormous orthodox cross which he built himself and when police came to raid his home he also had walls covered in icons all kinds of religious memorabilia he was based on what his neighbor said a pious a guy who went to church and you know forbid his wife from doing all kinds of things that are forbidden by the Orthodox Church. And there's at least one case or even a couple of cases that I've seen connected to domestic violence where the men were very religious, at least on the outside. Some men in Russia who are very religious and who see themselves as supporters of the Orthodox faith may see all the statements that are coming out by the Orthodox Church, including that they're the heads of the Orthodox Church and Patriarch Kirill, who's the head of the the Russian Orthodox Church, you know, speaking out against laws of domestic violence, saying that we need to stay out of what's happening in the family. 
that we need to preserve the family, whatever happens, regardless of what's taking place inside the household. They may see all these statements and essentially kind of think that they have carte blanche to do what they want to do. But I do think, at least in the case of uh, Mihail Hachdurian, he definitely saw cues from the statements that the church was making. After domestic violence was decriminalized in 2017, domestic violence itself spiked. Perhaps the most famous incident was the case of Margarita Gracheva. Margarita was in an abusive relationship, but the police wouldn't press charges against her violent husband. And then, one winter day, her husband drove her into the forest and chopped off both her hands with an axe. Just like with the Hachaturian sisters, no one took her situation seriously until it was far too late. The sisters' trials were delayed and delayed again. The pandemic certainly didn't help. Maria was going to be tried separately from her sisters, as she was only 17 when the killing happened. And when doctors evaluated her afterwards, they found her mentally unsound and recommended psychological treatment. Her trial began in August of 2020. Jury selection for the trial of Christina and Angelina was delayed five times due to all sorts of factors, including the coronavirus. First one of the sisters got it, and then some of the jurors got it. Now, during all of this, the family of Mikhail Khachaturian was trying to paint the sisters as the depraved ones. One of the things that really surprised people, perhaps one of the most surprising things about these cases, was how much of a kind of down-to-earth and completely normal, for lack of a better word, kind of outward profile, definitely the social media footprint these um, young women had. I mean, they, they posted photos themselves trying on new dresses, videos singing to pop songs, videos, uh, you know, kind of clips, uh, uh, shots from all the different parties that they had. The family of Mikhail Hashturian, his sisters, um, one of them is called Naira, I think the other one was called Madina, but I may be mistaken, who are very strongly pushing against the sisters' version of what happened and their mother's version as well. They have used all these photos in the social media footprint to portray these women as essentially depraved. They said that they, all they did uh, when, uh, you know, Hachiturian would go for his regular checkups to the local clinic because he had all kinds of health issues. They would, you know, host these raucous parties in the apartment, take all kinds of drugs, drink, invite boys over. Then one of them said, oh, you know, they completely mistreated their father. They didn't cook for him what they were supposed to cook for him. They gave him dog food, all these kinds of things. And every single time he came back home, the apartment was a mess. In fact, Mikhail's mother and one of his sisters tried to sue Aurelia, his wife, because Aurelia told a journalist that Mikhail had raped her. His mom and sister responded that a husband cannot rape his wife. But then, just this March... Something shocking happened. Suddenly, the sisters weren't the only ones waiting for a trial. Their dead father was, too. Russian investigators declared that the three sisters 
were victims in the criminal case against their father, according to the Moscow Times. There was now an open case against Mikhail Khachaturian. He was being charged posthumously with sexual assault, coercion into sex acts, and torture. His family had tried to stop this entire case from happening, but a district court said that that was illegal. And what does this all mean? It means that the sisters won't be tried until their father's trial is over. And if their father is found guilty, the sisters might just go free. And that's not the only update from 2021. Just this past April, Russia's constitutional court said that the penalties for being a repeat domestic violence offender weren't strong enough. The court ordered stronger laws and better protections for victims. Activists say that this still isn't enough. Police need to start taking domestic violence complaints seriously, and there aren't very many organizations that help the victims, just to name a few other problems. But it's not nothing. And the sisters? Today, they're under house arrest, waiting, waiting. After almost two decades spent with each other, isolated in the same nightmare house, They've been separated. They're not allowed to talk to each other or to the press. They can't use the internet. They're spending the last of their teenage years in this strange isolation, waiting for a trial that may never come. It feels tragic. But is it possible that they're happier this way? Christina's lawyer says that the first time they met, Christina told him that she was better off in jail than she was living at home. The sisters would have done anything to be free, even if it meant giving up their freedom. And so they wait for the courts to decide. The end, my dearest listeners. What did you think about that tale? I couldn't believe it when I came across it. It has that tabloidy, like, sleazy headline potential, and then you get into it, and it's so awful, and then also so relevant to the situation in Russia. Um in a very morbid way. It has it all. Thank you so much to Matthew Luxmore for coming on the podcast and giving me that, you know, boots on the street perspective that it is impossible to get until someone increases my ad budget enough that I can fly to Moscow myself. (laughs) All right, before I let you go, I have a big update on Lloyd Dean. So stick around. Okay. I don't know. Where do I start with this? So We covered Marie Dean Dean Arrington. She was the second woman to make the FBI's 10 most wanted list, right? In Florida in the, oh gosh, 70s, I think. We covered her a couple episodes back. And then I told you all that I was corresponding with her son, Lloyd Dean, who um, robbed a gas station when he was 19. No one was killed, but he was given life in prison, which just seemed so outrageously unfair And he was such a nice guy. I'd been corresponding with him over email, and I decided that we should raise some money for him. And so I told you guys that. And 
I kid you not, the donations came pouring in. Like, such generosity from all of you. I haven't added up the official number, but it's definitely over $500, maybe more like $600. And that's from a lot of little individual donations and some big donations, too. So just first of all, thank you. It really touches me um, to see that from you. I know that it's like there's so many things to give money to and it's overwhelming. I feel that way too. So thank you. It was really fun for me. My phone kept going off with the like Venmo sound. Is it cha-ching? It was cool. It was just cool to see the money being raised. Okay. But it turns out the story was not as straightforward as I thought it was. And I'm just going to tell you right up front if you donated money. It's I have not touched it, okay? And you're going to get to decide what we should do with it. So one of my eagle-eyed listeners, Andrena, sent me an email saying that she had looked into Lloyd Dean's um, public records. And actually, he had been released in 1979 and then reincarcerated in 1982. And the records didn't say what for. And this was actually something I remember seeing when I was researching the Marie Dean Arrington episode, but there were no details on what exactly had happened. And I knew he had gotten life in prison for the original robbery charge. And I, so I just like, I don't know, I guess I, (laughs) I just didn't process it. I just thought he was still there for the robbery charge. Okay. So thankfully, Andrena emailed me. And I was like, ooh, I need to look into this. And I, I'll be honest, I got a horrible sinking feeling. I was like, have I misled all my listeners? Am I, despite assuring them I wasn't conning them, am I actually accidentally conning them? So over the past couple of weeks, I've been emailing with Lloyd Dean and just kind of awkwardly being like, hi, like, what did you get reincarcerated for in 1982? And would you mind telling me about it? because I want to let my listeners know the full situation before they donate. It was an awkward message to send, but it also felt really unfair to you all to um, spend your money without you having the full story. So um, he told me that he was reincarcerated in 1982 for an assault charge. And I think there was a typo in his email because he said an assault charge I did commit. Now, I'm pretty sure he meant to write, did not commit. But my stomach dropped and I was like, oh no, I am encouraged. I've gotten my listeners all up in arms to donate to this man who's been given this sentence for something we thought was, you know, we thought it was one thing, but it's for an assault charge. Like, yikes. Um, So again, I awkwardly was like, I'm sorry. I know this is potentially a sensitive subject, but can you tell me more about this assault charge? What is going on? So just a couple days ago, he emailed me back and he, what he says is that it, he, it was a wrongful assault charge and it had to do with some family drama. I'm thinking I'm just going to read you the whole email, okay? I know this episode is already long, but then you can just be as up to date as I am, okay? So here is what Lloyd Dean says. He had told me, by the way, that he was inca- he's been incarcerated for 38 years for a crime he didn't commit. And I was like, are you talking about the original robbery charge? Turns out he's talking about the assault charge. So he says, Dear Tori, hi. The fact that I was incarcerated for 38 years for a crime I did not commit is not related to my original charge. In fact, when I was released from prison in 1979, I went to Newark, New Jersey to stay with my aunt while on parole. I really don't know what came over me, but I decided to return to Florida to stay with my grandmother. I remember my aunt saying before I left Newark that in her own words, you don't know your grandmother like I do. 
I understood that to mean if I'm not for you, I'm against you, but I don't judge her. But I believe that my aunt, in my opinion, had more influence on my grandmother than anyone in the family. I believe my aunt poisoned my grandmother's mind against me to create a situation that would violate my parole. And I believe my niece, also with my grandmother, played the role as witness against me. In brief, my niece went into the bath area, left there, and went to my grandmother and said that someone took a bath and did not clean the bathtub. When she said that to my grandmother, she got upset about it. That's the grandmother getting upset. And she said to me and my niece that wasn't going to be tolerated. So I put the newspaper aside and said that I would clean the bathtub. So when I went to the bath area, I noticed it was spotless clean. So I left the bath area back to continue to read the newspaper. By then, my grandmother was so upset about what my niece had told her about the bathtub as I was going back to continue to read the newspaper. By then, she had reached a high tone of voice. I stopped near her. Sorry, I'm reading this awkwardly. The the JPay, which I, I use to communicate with um, inmates, is like formatted. It's hard to read. Okay, let me back up. So his grandmother has, is reaching a high tone of voice with him. I stopped near her and was listening to what she had to say. I was looking down at the floor, and when I looked up, my grandmother had found a frying pan and was coming towards my face. What came to mind first was to push the frying pan away from me to restrain her. I told her to put the frying pan away, but she drew it back and she drew it back again, intending to hit me with it. I grabbed her left wrist. She fell on the floor and started laughing and told my niece to call the police. So I let her wrist go and walked over to my niece and told her to put the phone down. She ran out of the house and called the police. In matters of minutes, the police came to the house. My grandmother told the police that I had hit her with my fist and knocked her down, and the officer turned to me and asked me what happened, and I told him it's not true. So my grandfather told the officer she wanted to press charges for assault and battery. I don't know if that was another one of my niece's schemes, but only God knows, and my grandmother passed in 2001. But I still love her and forgive her. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. Peace be unto you and your family, Lloyd. Okay, so are you following this? Basically, Lloyd is saying he was out on parole. His grandmother pressed these assault and battery charges against him that he he kind of feels like he was set up. And be, I'm assuming because of the the nature of the charges and the violating of the parole or the alleged violating of the parole, he was given life in prison for the second time and is in prison to this day. So... It's a different story than what I originally told you. And guys, I'm so sorry that I got the facts wrong. And I'm embarrassed. I, I'm just embarrassed. I wish I had um, just dug further first. And, you know, so please forgive me for that. Um, but I hope you feel all caught up now. I'm going to reach out to everyone who donated individually and ask if you want to uh, still send your money to Lloyd or take it back. No judgment either way. I know this is a different tale than the tale of being imprisoned from age 19 on. So I'm going to leave it up to you. Um, I will, yep, I'll reach out to you and tell you to listen to this episode so you can hear the letter. But thank you anyway, all of you, just for caring, for donating, for keeping me honest, etc. All right, moving right along, I'm putting a change.org petition in the show notes, the ones that I the one that I mentioned in the episode. It's the one, it's titled Stop Prosecution of Khachaturian Sisters, Victims of Sexual and Domestic Violence. Um, it's the one that has over 400,000 signatures. If you guys want to add your signatures to it, 
couldn't hurt, okay? So it'll be in the show notes. So last but not least, I have so many patrons to thank for this episode. Uh, am I a am I a billionaire now? I'm not sure. <laughs> the patrons I have, the new patrons I've gotten over the past couple of weeks are Lauren V, Patrice KH, Elizabeth B, Michelle D, and Michelle B, CCB, Andrana D, B Campos, Emily DR, Melissa B, Sam T, and Rochelle L. Thank you all so much for keeping Criminal Broads on its sturdy little legs. I love you all, and there's one week left of Sister Month. I I may have saved the oddest tale for last, so meet me back here. Until then, have a great week. Love you all. Bye. Lord, help the mister who comes between me and my sister. And Lord, help the sister who comes between me and my man. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.